at least there'd be a really good argument about why you know Ford fiefdom is is an unconstitutional thing to do based on the principle of democracy. And there, notice what you would be doing: you'd be interpreting the term municipal institutions in the Constitution Act rather than saying is what is being done anti-democratic. And I think that's the difference again between between the tail wagging the dog and 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 the other way around where you, you can't have the principal doing the work. The principal has to inform the textual provision and it has to do the work. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Today's episode is the first in a special two-part series featuring interviews guest hosted by Runnymede alumni. In today's episode, Alexander Reschke, the president of Runnymede's Western Law Chapter during the 2021 to 2022 school year, Host Professor Leonid Serrata of Reading University and lawyer Asher Honickman of Jordan Honickman Barristers for a friendly debate over the Supreme Court of Canada's 2021 ruling in Toronto v. Ontario and what role, if any, unwritten principles should play in constitutional litigation. This debate was originally hosted by Runnymede's Western Law Chapter in February 2022. Thank you, Chris. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Alexander Reschke. Um, I'm the president of the Western's Runnymede Society student chapter, and I'll be moderating today's discussion about the Supreme Court of Canada's City of Toronto decision. So in the City of Toronto case, the claimants challenged the constitutional validity of the Better Local Government Act and sought orders restoring the 47 ward structure. The claimants argued that the provincial statute unconstitutionally limited the municipal candidate's right to freedom of expression under Section 2B of the Charter and violated the unwritten constitutional principle of democracy. Today's discussion between Asher Honickman and Professor Leonid Serrata is focused on the Supreme Court's attempt at canvassing the jurisprudence on unwritten principles. Asher Honickman is a partner at Jordan Honickman Barristers in Toronto and runs at a diverse practice in civil, commercial, and constitutional litigation. He has co-founded two legal societies, Advocates for the Rule of Law in 2014, followed by the Runnymede Society in 2016. Professor Leonid, Leonid Sorata is a Canadian public law scholar. He is an associate professor at Reading Law School, the founder of the Double Aspect blog, and a Runnymede Society veteran. Gentlemen, Thank you for taking the time to make this event possible. Q&A period will begin 15 minutes to one. So if anyone has any questions to ask our speakers uh, today, please send me the questions via, via the chat function. So to kick off this discussion, I'll ask this question. The claimants in the city of Toronto presented two main arguments. First, that Ontario, Ontario's Better Local Government Act unjustifiably, unjustifiably restricted the Section 2B guarantees of freedom of expression and a right to effective democratic representation, and second, that the unwritten principle of democracy, democracy constrains the authority of provincial governments over municipal institutions and elections. Was there any merit to those claims? Uh, I, I guess I'll speak first. Uh, thanks, Alex, for... Um... First of all, for having this panel, and good to see my my friend uh, Professor Sirota there. And he and I have been debating the uh, nuances of constitutional issues for probably something like six years now. So uh, it's always 
it's always fun to tease out where we agree and where we disagree. I, I think we both probably broadly agree, as you said, on, on the 2B point. Um, to, to me, this, this was an easy case for 2B. Um, like, like any fundamental freedom, uh, in, in my view, it is only infringed if, as a result of state conduct, uh, that freedom is impaired. In other words, it's what we call a negative right or, or negative liberty. Um, the court has said there's a very limited role. Um, uh, there's a very limited positive aspect to Section 2B. And in my view, its, it's analysis was, uh, was entirely correct on, on how limited that positive aspect is and why, why it wasn't engaged in this case. And, and that's basically because no one's freedom to, to express themselves was significantly impaired. Really what you had here was uh, some people saying that, um, you know, our, our voice is not as loud as it should be or as effective as it should be, but that's different from saying that you don't, you don't have the freedom at all. And, uh, and, and similarly to try and read in um, section three rights into section 2B, meaning, meaning uh, the right to vote and all that that implies, uh, really does violence to, to the text of the, of the charter because section three very expressly only applies to, um, to parliament and the provincial legislatures and to, and to read in a similar right into municipal institutions would be to do violence to, to the text of the charter and the clear purpose underlying it. Yeah, so I, uh, I uh, thanks, uh, thanks Asher and thanks Alex for the, the introduction. Thanks for having us here. Uh, I, I do agree with Asher. I uh, almost entirely, just to maybe take a step back in case anyone doesn't remember, uh, Section 2B of the Charter protects, among other things, the freedom of expression. Section 3 says that uh, every citizen of Canada has the right to vote at the provincial or federal election. Uh, and it doesn't mention other kinds of elections, including municipal elections. Section three has been interpreted, and, and that in itself is perhaps a questionable interpretation, but it's been interpreted as embodying a, a requirement of effective representation. Uh, and the applicants in the city of Toronto tried to import that requirement into section 2b into the the freedom of expression guarantee i agree with asher that the supreme court was right not to let them do that uh, i also agree with asher that uh, the the court was right to reject the the claim that because of the change with which occurred in mid-election the uh, people's ability the candidate's ability to communicate with voters was unconstitutionally impaired obviously uh, the effectiveness of the communications that had happened had uh, been thrown into uh, a lot of question, but that's neither here nor there. I don't think that's a, that's a constitutionally cognizable harm. I'm a little bit reluctant to say that the uh, Supreme Court's majority was entirely right to uh, try to close the door on of any positive aspect to the freedom of expression. I think some of the things that the majority said were unnecessary to resolve the case. And this is going to be a theme in my remarks uh, today. But so far as this particular case is concerned, I think the majority was right. So moving on to the second question then, uh, regarding the claimant's second argument, the majority in City of Toronto notably held that unwritten principles cannot be used as a basis for invalidating legislation. 
and may only be used to aid in the interpretation of written texts or to develop structural doctrines that fill gaps in the written constitution. Do you agree, do you agree with this holding, uh, Professor Sorota? Yeah, I think uh, this uh, statement and at the risk of being very old fashioned, I want to say that it's, it's actually, it might be an obiter rather than a holding because it's not necessary for the resolution of this case. Uh, but uh, this statement uh, in how categorical it is seems inconsistent with the with the precedence and I think we'll get into that uh, more in uh, the coming questions. Uh, I think it's inconsistent with uh, some recent precedents and it's not well supported. So uh, I would I yeah I think that there could be cases, not this one, just to be clear, not this one, but there could be cases down the road where in fact, and then the application of underlying principles would have the effect of invalidating legislation in whole or in part. And perhaps I'll save the, the precise reasons for, for a little further in, into the discussion. So um, I, I guess we agree and disagree in, in certain ways. I mean, I, I do agree that one, what the court, what the majority did was somewhat offside past precedents. I happen to think those past precedents are wrong. Um, and so, for example, Trial Lawyers Association, um, when uh, Leonid very generously invited me to write uh, on his 12 days of Christmas list on, on some of the worst decisions of all time, I think I put Trial Lawyers Association e either as the number one or two, or it was, or I said Rothstein's dissent was the best because the decision was so bad. Whatever it is, I, I'm I'm on record as saying I don't like Trial Lawyers Association, and for for reasons that I think the majority um, skips over a bit, uh, trying to put the genie back in the bottle regarding how we can use interpretive principles. That being said, I think the majority was right to want to. Um, attack this issue because it does come up in a lot of cases and it was certainly relevant here. And so I, while it might, might or might not be over, I'm not sure, um, I do think the court was right to, to engage with this issue on a more fundamental level rather than uh, what has happened in some of these other cases, which is that a court refers to unwritten principles but doesn't go back to, uh, to first principles of, of adjudication and how we can use unwritten principles. And so I do think this decision is helpful in, in providing a roadmap for future cases. Um, and maybe that's what was missing from these past precedents and why in my view, they are wrong. Um, I, I would say though that it doesn't, uh, and I understand why, but it doesn't quite go far enough uh, in explaining how we use the interpretive principles or how we use the constitutional principles to interpret text. It says, you know, we need to do it with, with fidelity to the text, etc. But I think this is an area where we could see problems in, in the future. Um, you know, one of the issues in this case is that those who are advocating democracy as a principle, they, they didn't really make the argument as well as they could have. And I don't believe the, the dissent uh, made the argument as well as they could have. They, they could have. they could have essentially picked up on what the majority was saying and said, yeah, 
we are using democracy to interpret a, a constitutional provision here. That provision is municipal institutions. Uh, the same way that in provincial judges reference, we were interpreting uh, provincial courts. And the same way in uh, trial lawyers association, we were interpreting section 96. And so in other words, this isn't just a freestanding constitutional principle, we are anchoring it to text. And so I think going forward, the more relevant question, which this case doesn't really address that well, is in assisting in an aid of textual interpretation, what can that principle really do? Um, you know, can you use the principle of democracy and ostensibly say that you're interpreting municipal institutions, but then use, use that to uh, essentially have the tail wagging the dog where democracy does all the work in interpreting what is allowed and, and the term that it's ostensibly interpreting does very little. I think that's where really the fight is going to be uh, going forward and where unfortunately it doesn't really happen here because as I said, you don't really get uh, a rigorous application of this from the minority. They, they're, they, the minority seems to be upset that the majority is even going here to begin with, uh, probably for some of the reasons that uh, Professor Sirota was, was outlining. Well, I, I think the what the minority uh, is upset about, I think they're upset about the insistence on the primacy of the text. And that's why they don't make the kind of argument that uh, Mr. Honickman was suggesting. It goes against what how they think the constitution should be interpreted. Uh, I think they wouldn't want to say that, you know, we are applying uh, the the provision that says that provinces have the power to regulate municipal institutions. We are just reading it in light of the principle of democracy. Uh, they want to say that the the provisions are uh, only partial explanations of the real law, and the real law is the principles. Uh, this is what I've been calling in some blog posts. I've been referring to this as constitutionalism from from Plato's cave, where the real the, the constitutional text is just a shadow of the real constitution, which only the wise uh, judges in the Supreme Court, and uh, specifically in the minority of the Supreme Court, can see. And then they have to explain to the rest of us what the real constitution is. But maybe maybe uh, to to return to what I think is the the role of uh, principles and this is so this is where uh, Mr. Honickman and I disagree uh, I think that based on uh, the precedents and and again I take it that we'll get into uh, the precedents shortly uh, but based on that I would say that there is room for applying uh, unwritten principles including to invalidate legislation if the legislation is uh, somehow at, fundamentally at odds with the character of the constitution. And I realize that this is a somewhat vague statement, but to give, well, to start from a contrario, this case about municipal elections is not calling into question the fundamental democratic nature of the constitution uh, quite clearly. The, um, uh, sorry, the Imperial Tobacco case, uh, which I think we'll maybe re return to, but that was a case from almost 20 years ago now, uh, where 
British Columbia introduced retroactively uh, civil liability for effectively for being a tobacco manufacturer. Uh, it was a gross violation of the rule of law. Uh, I think there's very little question about that. Uh, but it, uh, the charter explicitly protects uh, us from retroactive criminal legislation and by implication doesn't have anything to say about retroactive civil legislation. And the Supreme Court said that the principle of the rule of law couldn't be invoked um, to add the protection against retroactive civil legislation to, uh, to the Constitution. Again, I think that as unpleasant as that law was, it, uh, it wasn't calling into question the, the fundamental nature of the Constitution. Uh, but hypothetically, certain uh, situations could arise. And, and I think the, the way in which the principle of judicial independence, for example, has been used in, in cases and used and sometimes abused by the Supreme Court. But I think the idea in, in that line of cases, uh, which, which doesn't include, by the way, doesn't include trial lawyers, I uh, respectfully dissent from Mr. Honickman's assessment of it. Uh, the the majority was insistent, uh, and I think we should take it at its word that it was not primarily deciding the, the case on the basis of the principle of the rule of law. Uh, but the moral of the judicial independence cases in particular is that the constitution uh, from which the courts is an independent arbiter of legality and constitutionality would be excised would be a fundamentally different constitution. And I think that's that's a defensible proposition. Uh, whereas again, the contrast here is that as uh, perhaps stupid and uh, undesirable as the restructuring of municipal elections in the midst of an election campaign was, uh, it was not remotely a threat to the constitutional order. I think this is a good point to move on to the third question. So the majority wrote that federalism is a distinct constitutional principle because it is enshrined in the text of the constitution, particularly sections 91 and 92 of the Constitution Act 1867, and therefore part of the basic constitutional structure. Asher, does this distinction between federalism and other unwritten constitutional principles support the majority's position that unwritten principles cannot be used as a basis to invalidate legislation? I, I'm not sure it, it really matters candidly. Look, th there's no doubt that federalism is a principle underlying the constitution, but it is also captured in very specific textual ways. And so to the extent that you're looking beyond the specific textual manifestations of federalism and you want to use the principle of federalism, um, my response to, to that would be, well, in what way do you want to use it? In what, in, and what do you believe that it does as a general principle that the individual provisions don't? And, and of course, where this comes up is, is the patriation reference. Um, but, but I agree with, with what the majority in that case held, which was that you can't use the federalism principle to read in um, to, to read in what essentially amounts to to uh, 
consent of, of both orders to, to amend the constitution. I mean, remember back in those days, what was happening was not even really legal to begin with. It, it was all conventional that, you know, parliament didn't have the legal right to amend the constitution. Parliament would just go to the UK legislature and ask them to do it. And the UK legislature had every legal right to tell the Canadian parliament, no, we don't feel like amending it. But, if, but as a matter of convention, they would listen to everything, uh, every request that Canadian parliament made. And so we can understand how based on that convention and based on the federal principle, there, there would be a corresponding convention within Canada to require provincial consent. But that's different from saying that, that a, a federalist federalism principle um, has some kind of legal and justiciable requirement. That, that's what I don't really see. I, I think if you wanna see what the legal and justiciable requirements are, you read sections 91 and 92 and, and you know, 92 uh, to 95 in some other ways, but, but mainly you read sections 91 and 92 uh, and they tell you exactly the way in which Canada is a federal state and, uh, you know, and, and, and they divide, they divide power and, and we, we see how that works, but I don't think you necessarily need to look beyond that. Um, I don't think you need to start invoking concepts, let's say provincial autonomy. Uh, it, it, it is there. In other words, the, the principle is, is set out very clearly in a very specific kind of way. So this is another point on which uh, we disagree, and uh, the as important as sections 91 and 92 and 93 are, uh, they are they don't exhaust federalism. They say nothing about the doctrine of paramountcy. They say nothing about the double aspect principle. Uh, those are implications from the nature of the federation, from the broader. Uh, the, the idea that uh, provinces are uh, within their uh, li the limits of, of Section 92, but that they have the, the same kind of legislative sovereignty as Parliament uh, does, uh, which the Privy Council developed in the early federalism cases. I mean, that's not there on, on paper, and the arguments to the contrary weren't crazy. Uh, but that's a judicial derivation from the nature of Canada as a federal entity. Uh, so uh, I think it's uh, it's a mistake to think that uh, the provisions of uh, sections 91 and 92 exhaust the federal principle. They certainly set out the uh, key details of it, but there is also uh, a background behind them uh, from uh, which the the courts have uh, have drawn uh, quite prolifically and uh, and justifiably. I mean, whatever the you know, merits of individual decisions, I think the general scheme of uh, how the division of powers operates in Canada is broadly right. Uh, and again, it's not uh, limited to sections ninety one and ninety two. Now, the patriation references is a good example of the kind of case where. Uh, principles should have a constraining effect, although it was not on legislation uh, in, in that case. Uh, 
the I think the dissent on the legal question is right in patriation. The Supreme Court, of course, agrees with that because in the secession reference, the unanimous Supreme Court quoted and referred to the dissenting judgment on the legal question without acknowledging that it was referring to a dissent, uh, but it, it uh, endorsed the position of the dissent in that case. Uh, and uh, be, because if uh, the if Parliament has the legal authority to, uh, well, if Parliament had the legal authority to secure amendments of the, uh, the Constitution without provincial consent, that would have uh, meant that Parliament had the legal authority to ultimately even abolish federalism, would have had the legal authority to secure amendments to Section 92 uh, without provincial consent or input. And that would have been an example of a situation where the fundamental nature of uh, Canada as a federation was imperiled. Uh, so in the event that it didn't happen because of what the Supreme Court said in the, uh, the part of its opinion that dealt with the conventional question. But I think that the dissent on the legal question had, had, had it right. Uh, and so that would be an example uh, of, of where principles can come into play. And to my mind, uh, coming back to what I started with, uh, the, the fact that sections 91 and 92 don't exhaust federalism, although they are of course very important, this shows that federalism is not very special compared to all the other principles. So if you take the principle of democracy, you can point to an, a range of provisions in both the 1867 uh, Constitution Act and the 1982 one, which uh, refer to uh, various applications of the democratic principle to the fact that the, the House of Commons is elected, the provincial legislatures are elected, uh, to the, the House of Commons role in, in the enactment of legislation and so on. Of course, we know that crucial elements of the democratic principle as it is applied in Canada are not explicitly stated, in particular the conventions of responsible government. So in part it is uh, stated in the text, in part it is not, but it's undeniably there as part of the constitution. Uh, the same goes for the principle of the rule of law. There are some very important provisions in the text, for example, the prohibition on retroactive criminal law, the uh, various fair trial rights, uh, the existence of independent courts. Uh, those are textual provisions that support and, and uh, exemplify the principle of the rule of law. But again, the principle as, for example, the Manitoba reference suggests, the principle has other implications as well. Uh, and so federalism is no different. And I think it's, it's, it's one of those uh, very uh, sketchy distinctions that the majority in City of Toronto attempts to draw, uh, which cannot support its argument. I just want to push back on that a bit, though. Uh, say a couple of things. So you brought up paramountcy, you brought up double aspect. I, you know, I obviously I don't deny those principles exist. I don't deny that they are not expressly set out in the text, but we can't conflate specific principles like paramountcy with the larger principle of, of federalism. And, and, and that was my point that if you want, if you're talking about big abstract principles like federalism, like democracy, like the rule of law, those principles can inform the interpretation of text 
but they, they're not freestanding. The freestanding principles, and the majority talks about this in the city of Toronto, are the much more specific principles that do very specific things that we need them to, to uh, allow the constitution to, to, to operate. And so paramountcy is an example of that. If you don't have a paramountcy principle, then, then you don't have a functioning division of powers because you will invariably have situations where one orders law uh, conflicts with another orders law and both laws, both laws are valid. I, I would say things like things like double aspect, even things like ancillary powers, and, and, I've, and I've written a paper on this, how all of them necessarily flow from the text and from the structure of, of sections 91 and 92. You, you could not have a viable federalism jurisprudence without them, but notice how, how uh, specific in particular they all are, and they need to be that way. And so when we're, when we're outside the realm of interpretation of text and we're in the gap filling realm that the majority talks about, we, we must endeavor to define those principles as specifically as possible and, and as narrowly as possible to truly fill in the gaps. So an example there would be something like a suspended declaration of invalidity where you can say that there are some cases where where because of the rule of law and, and the necessity of having a, a functioning legal order, there must be an ability for a court to suspend uh, a declaration of invalidity. But it doesn't follow from that, that that's a general power that a court has at its disposal, the, the, the same way that it can declare a constitutional provision uh, uh, to be, or a statutory provision to be unconstitutional. In other words, it's not something, it's not a power that they can use uh, willy-nilly at their discretion. And so it's important when we're defining those gap filling powers that we, or gap filling principles that we do define them uh, narrowly in my view. Um, you know, with respect to the patriation reference specifically, let's remember the issue was not, does parliament have the authority to unilaterally amend the constitution? That might've been the effect, but again, it was the British parliament, the same parliament that created our constitution. So of course that parliament would have the authority to, to unilaterally amend that constitution. Th that, uh, that was a function of our constitutional order at the time that the British parliament could have, yes, could have gotten rid of Canadian federalism at that time. And if what had happened was that the Canadian parliament had asked them to do it, we could say that the Canadian parliament acted unconstitutionally in a conventional sense, but again, not, not in a legal, not in a justiciable sense. And I think that that's the issue. Some things can be unconstitutional, but not necessarily uh, illegal or or justiciable. And and I agree with Leonid that the secession reference picked up on the dissent. But in my view, that's that's a problem not with the patriation majority, but with the secession reference. Just just very quickly on on patriation. The issue in patriation was the power of the. Uh, houses of the Canadian Parliament to uh, enact, to pass a resolution that sought uh, certain action in the UK. It was not uh, anything about the powers of the UK Parliament. The Supreme Court of Canada wouldn't have uh, answered a question about that. So it was a question about the, the powers of the houses of the Canadian uh, Parliament. And again, yeah, we obviously we have a, a disagreement because I think the, the dissent there was uh, the, on the legal question, the dissent was right. So I, I want to pose this next question. So the majority claims that the application 
of the democratic principle to invalidate legislation would constitutionally amend the text of section three of the charter. Professor Serrato, do you agree with this position? Yes, I think that much is, is right. And I think this is all that the majority needed. So I, I wouldn't maybe, okay, I wouldn't put it in terms of amending. Uh, you, you could put it in that way. It's a little odd to me. It's, I would just say it's inconsistent with the, the text of uh, section three of the charter and the uh, obverse of the text of section three of the charter. The section three of the charter says that uh, there is a right to vote in uh, provincial and uh, federal elections. It does not by implication, necessary implication, it does not apply to municipal elections. So to import uh, under the, the guise of the democratic principle to import the same requirements that exist in the provincial and federal context and impose them in the municipal context would be inconsistent with uh, section three. It would be the, a supplementation of section three, I hesitate to call it amendment because of course a, co a court cannot amend the text. Uh, but but in effect, I, I understand why the Supreme Court uh, describes it in this way. And the parallel here is the, again, this uh, Imperial Tobacco case, where, as I already said, the argument was that the, the court should use the principle of the rule of law to, in effect, expand the protection against retroactive legislation that is in the charter, and but only applicable to criminal laws. Uh, the court should expand it in the civil context. And the court said no, uh, because uh, it, what it should have said is, well, because the, the charter has made, a, the framers of the charter have made a, a clear choice that it doesn't apply there. And as much as I dislike the result of that decision, I think I think that it is correct. Uh, and in the same way, the, the city of Toronto decision should just have said that, look, the framers of the charter, and they, they do say it, it's just that they say a lot more, which they shouldn't have. Uh, the framers of the charter made a choice not to extend its protections to the municipal context. Uh, and so that's the end of the story. So, so we agree here, and um, I, I think, you know, if we're if we're reading that sentence from the majority um, reasonably and, and charitably, of course, I don't believe the majority is saying that there would be an actual, uh, you know, legally affected amendment to the charter. The the point is that uh, it would be an effective amendment by judicial fiat, and 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 I've argued this in other contexts that when when the court. Um, ignores what the text says, and, and reasonable people can disagree about what the text says, but when the court uh, ignores a clear uh, invocation or implication from the text, it does effectively amend the constitution. And the, and the constitution represents uh, a consensus of, of what amounts to a supermajority. Um, there was, it, it was a painstaking exercise to enact both the 1867 and 1982 constitutions, and so you are you're undermining the principle uh, the principle of democracy that the minority uh, cares about. You're you're undermining that principle by by reading in uh, new textual provisions, and you're also undermining the rule of law, another principle, and you're undermining the basis for judicial review in the first place. Judicial review uh, has its source in the text of the constitution. That's why we let 
these, these wise men and women in robes tell us, tell us that our democratically elected, uh, democratically enacted legislation is unconstitutional because a text in our constitution says they can do that. So when you start playing with the text, you, you undermine the, the very foundations of, of that very important function of judicial review. So I'm gonna move on to the next question um, that deals with the 1998 secession reference. The minority cited the court's description of unwritten principles from the 1998 secession reference as the vital unstated assumptions upon which the text is based. Um, Mr. Honickman, do you agree with this description? And if, and if not, how would you describe the relationship between unwritten principles and the written constitution? So, so this is a whole other issue really that, that didn't arise in city of, of Toronto because in city of Toronto, everyone agreed that democracy is an important constitutional principle, but th there's, there's really three issues when we're dealing with constitutional principles. The first issue is what are the principles that, that we can say are constitutional principles? Then the second becomes how do you use those principles, which is what the, the main focus of the majority decision was on, and that's that they can be interpretive aids or, or fill in gaps. And then the third issue that I alluded to at the beginning was uh, how do particular or, or, or how do specific constitutional provisions, how do they interpret specific, uh, or sorry, how, do, how do particular constitutional principles interpret particular constitutional provisions, which that a lot of debate can happen there. So, so this is really, Quebec secession references that first issue. What are the principles? Um, and you know, there's been a lot of debate about, first of all, whether all the principles listed in that decision are constitutional principles. And secondly, whether they're, they are the foremost constitutional principles. Um, you know, you, you could have put, um, you could have said that order was, was one of the number one principles upon which Canada's based. You could have said liberty is one of, is one of the principles upon which Canada's based. Um, democracy, does that mean democracy within Quebec? Does that mean democracy within Canada to decide Quebec's fate? Um, minority rights, what does that mean? Which rights for which minorities? Are we talking about just linguistic minority rights? Or are we talking about something more general, which I'm not candidly sure is, is something that is uh, you know, fundamental to the constitution? I mean, there are many minority rights. Is it, is it more important than something like liberty, more important than something like order? I don't know. And so even delineating what these principles are uh, at the outset can be very difficult. And I would say that when we are going to affirm an unwritten constitutional principle at the outset, we need to be very, very certain that this is a principle that, that arises from necessary implication of the text and the architecture of the constitution. It has to be something for which there, there's a very strong consensus. And I think democracy does meet that test. And, and I think that's why uh, there was no doubt in, in Toronto, uh, in city of Toronto, that democracy is a constitutional principle. But if we start getting into things like access to justice, which arose in trial lawyers association and which the, the court, it's, it's unclear if they're saying access to justice is a constitutional principle or if it's anchored to the rule of law, which is a constitutional principle. But either way, I'm not sure that access to justice is at all a constitutional principle, even acknowledging uh, as, as a practicing lawyer who, who has, uh, you know, who encounters this issue day to day with actual clients, I, I, 
I'm concerned about access to justice, I don't know that it's a constitutional principle. So we have to be very clear and very careful when we're delineating what these constitutional principles are. Uh, and I'm not entirely convinced that Quebec secession reference got them right. And I recall um, being in my advanced constitutional uh, class in third year law school with then Professor Stratus, uh, now Justice Stratus of the Federal Court of Appeal. And, and, and we spent an entire class going through those unwritten principles and, and, and why those were included and why others were left out. So it's, it's something we need to talk about more, not just, not just assume. Yeah, I, I, so I think the, the description in, in secession reference is a bit misleading. I think there's, it's a, more of a recursive relationship between text and principles. I mean, it's, it's also a mistake to say that those uh, principles are, are, are unstated. They are, some of them are in fact stated. Some of them are stated in preambles. 1867 one mentions federalism, 1982 one uh, mentions the rule of law. Uh, the, um, and so the, of the text uh, was written the way it was in order to give effect to uh, at least some of those principles like federalism, the rule of law and federal uh, and uh, and democracy uh, at, at the very least, and perhaps some others. Uh, but then we can also look at the text and uh, uh, de derive those more general principles uh, from a fair reading of the text. Uh, so it's it's a bit of a more complicated relationship. The, the dissent in, uh, in the city of Toronto case wants to say that, again, the, the principles are, are the real constitution and the text is just an imperfect uh, statement. And I, for the reasons I said uh, already, I think that is a misguided approach to, to interpretation. Uh, just push back on, again, about uh, trial lawyers. Uh, there was no constitutional principle of access to, to justice there. And that was said to be an implication from the text, actually from section 96. Uh, and and the, the principle that the majority invoked was that of, uh, of the rule of law. Uh, but um, anyway, I can, I can say a lot more about trial lawyers and how it should have been decided, but I'll stop here. Yeah. Um... Now, I know we're cutting into uh, Q&A soon. I do want to pose one more question. I hope we can make a, you both can provide succinct answer to this question, if it's possible. Was City of Toronto a good test case for exploring the role of unwritten principles in constitutional interpretation? If not, do you expect the Supreme Court to eventually change its stance on unwritten principles? And Professor Serrata, you can, you can begin. Uh I think it wasn't a good case because, as I said before, the answer was very simple. Uh, the answer was basically following imperial tobacco and uh, the court should have limited itself to that and, and not made any grander statements in the way it has uh, while you know, not being faithful to precedent and, uh, and so on. And as for whether the Supreme Court will change its stance, uh, the Supreme Court is no great respecter of precedent, I would not be surprised. I, I agree with that in the sense that um, because the unwritten principle argument was so weak, it, it wasn't a good test case. I, I think you need a much more extreme violation of, of unwritten norms. Like, you know, if, 
this would be an interesting case. It won't happen, but it'd be an interesting case if 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 the Ford government said, you know what, we're tired. I'm tired of these of, of Toronto City Council just existing. I want to make I, I'm I'm renaming Toronto Ford Fiefdom, and I'm putting in one of my family members, and he's going to be governor of of Ford Fiefdom, and he'll serve for life. And there will never be as long as I'm premier, and my successor might repeal this, but as long as I'm premier, there will never be another election in Toronto again, in, in, in what is now called Ford fiefdom. And I think in that case, you know, maybe there's an interesting textual argument where you say, look, municipal institutions in section 92.8 inherently or implicitly means democratic municipal institutions. Um, the provincial legislature cannot create undemocratic institutions. That would actually be a really interesting case legally because there would actually be a legitimate pushback argument to that too, which is to say, well, the, dem the democratic part is the, uh, what the Ontario legislature is doing and its successor can, can abolish Ford fiefdom tomorrow if it's such a, if it's such a big issue. Um, but there would at least there be a really good argument about why you know, Ford fiefdom is, is an unconstitutional thing to do based on the principle of democracy. And there, notice what you would be doing, you'd be interpreting the term municipal institutions in the Constitution Act rather than saying is what is being done anti-democratic. And I think that's the difference again between, between the tail wagging the dog and, and, and the other way around, where you, you can't have the principal doing the work, the principal has to inform the textual provision and it has to do the work. Uh, and I hope we never get to a, a situation like that as, as hilarious as it would be, it would, it, would be um, it would be corrosive to democracy. So I hope we don't get there. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and scholars committed to the principles of constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. This week's episode was guest hosted by Alexander Reschke. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and scholars. So long for now.